This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Michael Garfield. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Michael is an artist working in music, painting, and myriad avenues of research with the Santa Fe Institute. He's had numerous life-changing encounters with craft and non-human intelligences. I had a series of admittedly psilocybin-assisted, but nonetheless very vivid and consensual group sightings of UFOs um, with different groups of people. I brought three different groups of people out to the same lake over the course of a year in 2006 and seven. Three different groups, and then I brought members of all three groups together for a fourth visit to the lake, and we saw craft again. So four times in that year. And then there were times that we went out, uh, I should say, we did sort of like controls where went out, took mushrooms, brought a camera, went out specifically to photograph them and didn't see anything. You know, went out with with no camera, no mushrooms, didn't see anything. Went out with the camera, you know, and like it like it did it did all the different, and like the first two actually were were really useful because the first two were two weeks apart. So one was on the new moon and one was on the full moon, and that's an important distinction that I'm still not totally clear on. But we'll get to that. The first night, I had just watched the day before. Talk about priming the 2001 disclosure project. National press conference hearings, the two and a half hour video where they have what is it, 22 or 24 testimonies. Is that the Robert Hastings one? It's like the nuclear disarmament, you know, the Robert Hastings. Yeah, I think he was in there. Um, it's been pr- actually a decade since I was really, really down the, the library rabbit hole, you know, reading and studying about this stuff on a, on a full time kind of like bender. But I had just watched that video. I was going out there with my now wife and my two other friends from the dorms, my buddy and his girlfriend. He, well, he was an electric guitarist. He was a Jimi Hendrix fan and an electrical engineer who like made his own clothing like Jimmy's clothing and made his own pedals like Jimmy's pedals. And was an aviation student who was the son of a test pilot who had, his dad had named him Ace. And (laughs) (laughs) I just, just, just to lay this out, just to lay this out, like he and I are thinking about planes. Okay. Love it. Like we're thinking about special planes, futuristic planes. I know that you asked, you you wanted to talk about the, you know, the, the human craft in this, uh, in this conversation. So that's like a piece of this was that, you know, he's somebody who is like thinking about secret space programs. And so was I, and we went out to the lake and we were on this meadow overlooking the lake. And there was this weird shack on the meadow and electrical lines that came out of the shack and went up to like what looked like the start of a series of electrical uh, towers, but then it just didn't go anywhere. And I kind of joked that like, you know, if you look down, you could see from the shack, this jetty going into the lake and then a, like a sewer manhole, like a 
plug at the end of it that led to some underground or like under the water, like it was in the lake at that point, some tunnels under things, this, this artificial, you know, army Corps of engineers reservoir. And we're opposite the dam. And I was like, Oh yeah, it's probably some sort of electrical, you know, but I was like, but what if, what if this whole lake were just sort of like a, a sink or a buffer for some fabulously sophisticated futuristic energy source that they're beaming to a, a an experimental craft in orbit. I was just like, what if, what if it's a remote energy supply? You know, that this, that that's really what this lake is that we've been coming to and enjoying for years. And I was like, well, then you would expect that it would, you'd see the, the craft fly past that weird dead end electrical tower just about there. And I like pointed to the spot in the sky. And then a few minutes later, as we were walking up the hill, right at that very spot in the sky, this thing flies over the tree line and flies over the tree line in a sine wave. Okay. So this is like one of the things that I don't know if Phil Ford ever listens to this episode, but he was talking about how there's like a style thing about UFO reports that he finds kind of noxious, which is like, you know, it flew in this way. It had these lights, you know, but it's like, <laughs> you know, that it's just like at some point it becomes this sort of rote and mechanical and, and boring. But the fact is, it's like, what else are you going to do? You know, like when we are confronted by trauma, you know, one way to react in a healthy way to trauma is through patterned, repetitious, you know, goal-directed seeking behavior, you know? And so like, this is people writing the patient elaborate trip reports and the sand mandalas and all of these things that we that we do in the face of encounters with profound mystery i you know i consider the you know the diligent principled rigorous quantitative <laughs> ufo report to be one of these things you know to be people being like listen i'm going to plant my damn stake in the ground here you know so that we know this isn't moving you know this is what happened and there's something really beautiful about that so anyway I only ever found in my scouring of the literature, I didn't get nearly as deep as I, I suspect you have. I know Sean has gone, but I never found anything quite like what I saw, except one report from like the late 18th century, which I found kind of odd. Um, but it was kind of like one large red bulb in front, followed by a, a trail of smaller yellow lamps and it was inside a sort of ovoid transparent volume like a like a deep sea creature bioluminescent you know fish or whatever you know you can see through it and it's glowing inside little dots and it made a sound like a boat motor like i remember specifically thinking it sounded like it was in water rather than a sound that i was hearing coming through the air it's like <laughs> And it came over the hill in a sine wave floating up and down as it moved. It seemed rather large, like, like a small commercial jet, but like impossible to say, 
I remember all I said to my friends was, do you see that? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We absolutely see that. That's, and there was enough convincing, what the hell am I looking at in their voices that I ran after it without any need for further confirmation. So this is like my initiation into how to do this right. <laughs> and this is like step one. <laughs> step one is how to do it wrong. You know, it's like run off into a field after the UFO. So, but that's what I did. And in, in so doing, I saw it go kind of behind as it was kind of plugging along the lake shore heading kind of, I want to say Northeast, it flew behind a tree, but it looked like it, to me, it looked like it was still in front of the tree. Like it was getting smaller and fainter, but I could still see it as though it were not occluded by the tree itself. And I was like, ah, okay, this is a test. And I am failing this test, you know, because <laughs> I was like, all right, this is, this is it. I don't, I, you know, this is clearly a thing that other people see and it's inside my own mind somehow. And I don't know how to reconcile that. And then we couldn't find our way back to the campsite. I, 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 ha I didn't tell this in previous tellings, but it's important, I think, to note that we didn't find our way back to the campsite. And there was like a, a, a very narrow trail in some very thick, late summer, spider heavy, kind of bushy, marshy lakeside stuff. And, and we got frustrated and just gave up. And as we were sitting there on self-imposed timeout near the top of the trail at that meadow over the lake, trying to find our way back down to the campsite, another UFO showed up and just stood like stood there over us while we were just like, like hunkered in our shame of like, Oh, we're, we're tripping too hard oh to God. find our own damn trail back to camp. Was it the same morphology? No, this was, this was a round object, you know, circular, you know, lamp close encounters style thing, silent, completely still. And I didn't remember that one until after we had all gotten home and we were all talking through the events of that night. You know, that's an important piece of this too, which is, and I know that you wanted to touch on certainly not all, but many of my alien stories were psychedelic assisted. And, you know, so that's, that's like a key ingredient in the, what, you know, Ken Wilber would call the cosmic address here, right? Like a fully transparent, an honest accounting of these events because I know that the, at this point there, the weight of testimony is such that I am capable of sort of coming out of the closet here without it damaging the case for UFOs. <laughs> I completely agree. Actually, I think it deepens the equation of the mystery, the puzzle we're engaging here how we need to up our reality game in order to meet this phenomenon where it lives. Instead of collapsing it to our frame, we need to truly obtain a nuanced understanding. Take, for example, the fact that 
these were shared sightings. Both of these first two are communal events. It's not the first time I've heard truly incredible life-changing encounters of groups of people who were on psilocybin or something else, and not only having shared sightings, but interactions. So far from discounting these types of encounters because of the psilocybin, I think it's an invitation into deeper layers of the mystery. And I just want to hand the talking stick back to you, having affirmed that. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I do think it is... um... It's of note because the second experience, two weeks later again, so that was a new moon. This time was a full moon. This was not planned by me. I mean, I did not intend for this to happen, but it it worked out that way. And I think it worked out that way in a, a very felicitous way because that showed me an important difference. Going out at high tide and low tide shows you about a beach. And two weeks later, I went out to the same spot with... Uh, two of my really close guy friends, my best friend from high school and his college roommate. And I was like, you guys, because I was at that point, I was fed up. I was angry at, at Nikki for not being as excited about our UFO sighting as I was, <laughs> you know, I was 20, I was 22 at yeah. the time. Okay. So it's like, yeah. you know, like a, a little bit of charity towards the younger me but i was pissed i was like what do you mean like how can you not be completely upside down about this like we saw aliens nikki's like i don't know what i saw i was tripping you know and it's those two voices together made civilization Stuart. so (laughs) (laughs) yes so uh (laughs) So here we are, and two weeks later, I bring my friends out. And at that point, you know, I'm thinking like CE5. I'm like, all right, these are two people that are willing to indulge me in, you know, they're willing to trust me, willing to go out to the lake and take mushrooms and like bank on the possibility that they're going to see some some damn aliens, you know? (laughs) Like, So let's do it. And remember, like, let's actually try to initiate contact if we, if we see anything, you know, let's go out there with the intention of initiating contact. Let's declare it. Let's wait and see what happens. And then let's encourage a peaceful diplomatic encounter. So yeah, we went out and right at sunset or like right in the, in the gloaming, you know, the lake, the sky in the lake turned pink and all the insects are like hovering over the water, birds are zipping in and out, you know, snapping up insects over the water and the lake, the waves are coming in all smooth and lovely. And we're just sitting there appreciating everything and had kind of forgotten why we were there, you know, why we're, and then suddenly this like lamp again, like a lantern appears in the sky and it seems like it's growing and we're looking, I guess, kind of Southeast over the lake now down by the water, just east of the meadow I was mentioning earlier, but like down on a rocky shore. And this, uh, for anyone who lives in or near Lawrence, Kansas, this is the Clinton Lake 
Woodridge Primitive Park that I'm talking about here. So you can go out there yourself and, and see this stuff. It's I actually talked to many people who said that they had seen UFOs around the lake after I had these experiences. So I don't think that, I don't know what's going on out there, but at any rate, this lantern in the sky grows. And then I'm like, huh, I wonder if I'm looking at the thing edge on, you know, cause the last time I saw this thing, it was one big bulb in front, but this is kind of an orange bulb. I'm like, well, if you are a craft and you do have the ability to read my mind as so many of these reports claim then uh why don't you flip why don't you turn so i can get a better look at you like turn broadside and in that very moment this thing turned like a whale like a giant thing in the sky far like over the other side of the lake you know like way off in the distance but like it it broadsided it went like over the course of a couple seconds and then suddenly behind it were a string of tiny little yellow uh, lanterns in not quite like the first one. It was uh, alternating twos and ones like vertically. So kind of like actually kind of, you know, I started thinking about these as like subunits of the, uh, like the Sephiroth, like the tree of life, you know, they looked like little kind of diagrammatic kind of Kabbalistic things. And we saw many of them this night. That's the, to me, the main difference between the new moon sightings at the lake and the full moon sightings at the lake was that we saw hundreds of craft the second time we went out and they were all different kinds of stuff uh flying around in all different kinds of ways we saw stuff kind of it, it would come in waves which was the the, the weird thing <laughs> so Stuart, lay this one down on on all of this like this was when we started really getting into the high strangeness of it in, in like a deeper and more sort of elaborate way, because they would come in waves where it felt like it felt like the trip was getting stronger for all three of us, but then also other animals at the lake would make noises in out of nowhere in the middle of the night, suddenly would like a, like a lake bird would start squawking every time one of these things happened and like things just picked up like the energy just picked up and suddenly we would look up in the sky and after you know half an hour to an hour of nothing there'd be like dozens of things swimming around up there it was like they just faded in and i started thinking well okay what's going on is that we're fading in like we're tuning in like a radio station you know and we're like catching these like updrafts and somehow of whatever <laughs> and um phasing in and out of the reality where we can see these things and that tonight some of them seemed a little bit more sort of grounded and terrestrial like the one that we saw the first night like they had somewhere to go you know like they were moving from one sort of land-based departure site to another land-based arrival site some of them seemed like permanent residents of the atmosphere or like the etheric atmosphere. Um, and they had, it looked like looking into a, a, like a slide of pond water where you like all the little different single celled organisms swimming around and you can see through and into them and all their organelles. 
And all of this was like variations on the theme of transparent body with lights inside. And some of them seemed sort of more microscopic organism. And some of them seemed more like macroscopic craft. It was very difficult to get a sense for size on anything, except for like some of them made sounds that were kind of suggestive of large or small. And then some of them moved in a straight line. Some of them moved in sine waves. Some of them moved in this way that when I talk about like pond water, like it would rotate and you could tell it could rotate because the front of it had two lights that would spin around each other as it rotated. And it would rotate and then drift, like kind of sink in the air, like it was in a gel. And then it would like rotate again and kind of like it had a gate, you know, like you would see kind of, you know, some microorganism. The smaller ones, the, the more sort of ambient ones seemed attracted to the moonlight. Like they were bathing in it or soaking it up, you know, powered by it. So that's that. And and I should I should add that um, while we're in the subject of and every you know, both and and paradox and all that, that that was the night that I started getting God, I hate even using this word, but downloads, you know, where I <laughs> it's like, ugh, God, it's it's the years in festival culture, you know. <laughs> but sorry, but sorry, every everyone, sorry to everyone. <sighs> there's there's the Jew. So yes. um no, of course. But how are we to refer to the depositing of such tremendous amounts of information and inspiration? All kinds of material we can't even identify. Download is a cringy term, but it's probably the most convenient referent for what began to happen in your life after these experiences occurred. I get the cringe factor. I've had the download myself. I don't love talking about it either, but I've had the experience and <laughs> I'd like to ask some more around the coupling of these two shared sightings. Yeah. To begin with, one implication perhaps from the behavior of these, you know, one <laughs> one thing I love right off the bat is how transgressive they are to categories. There's all these kinds of things in here that suggest craft objects but then this morphing dynamic quality to them as well a sentience they're interacting with you telepathically on on top of that there seems to be a sympathetic resonance with what you are evoking by introducing the psilocybin so do you feel that part of the diplomacy that you went into with setting an intention, invoking diplomacy? Do you feel that not taking a camera and instead simply bringing your full presence and your awareness, not attaching accoutrement such as cameras, do you think that was a factor? I don't know. I mean, I am a lifetime amateur photographer. I'm deeply passionately into photography and I've definitely had a lifetime encounter with the question of like, when is it appropriate to, to be the camera and when is it not? You know, it's a very deep contemplation. And I decided at an earlier trip at the lake that happened, I don't know, sometime before these experiences, for me, it was a matter of alignment with the heart. 
and that it would not be distracting myself from the moment. You know, there's a tantra to photography, basically. If I can extend myself into the instrument, if I can really, really like enfold it into my body mind and use it as an opportunity for, there's a series of photography asanas. You know, there's a yoga of photography that like with the camera as a, as a tool, you know, you, you find, I've been doing things like I have very short ceilings in Santa Fe. And so I, I can put my hands on flat on the ceiling. So I've been doing things like balancing the phone on my nose to take a picture of my hands flat on the ceiling. Like that, that shit takes your full attention. And <laughs> so, I mean, I, I say that as a sort of way to try and like dig that question out into a broader current, which is about like why these phenomena sometimes appear for people and sometimes they don't. And like why th sometimes they seem willing to perform on record and why sometimes they don't. There are probably as many answers to that question as there are minds to answer it but it is fully possible. And I think this has been a big lesson of my engagement with these bizarre experiences over the years. At, you know, a strict injunction from whatever intelligence lies behind the psychedelics that I have participated with over the years also, that I am not to falsely like sift out one realm from the other as though they're two separate realms that I am to trip with my eyes open rather than to close them and like depart into fantasy land. You know, that was a very, very specific injunction in uh, 2012. Go in whenever you want, but make sure that like, basically like make sure you can swim or do, or go in no deeper than you can stand. And keep your eyes open because you, the whole point is for you to relay and not just relay after the fact, but like actively knit these two things, integrate this world into the other and make them one world in your, in your experience and in your life and in the way that you live. And, you know, integration was commanded of me long before I ever saw it. And I am so deeply grateful to see it emerge in the discourse around psychedelic therapies. And even, you know, just here in Colorado, even just around like, you know, recreational use now, people are saying, yeah, yeah integration is really important. And so to, to your question about the cameras, I think that to the extent that you, it, you know, I'm, I am the child of a, a a retired 40 plus year travel industry executive. You know, my father worked for cruise lines and airlines and amusement parks and hotel chains and talked a good line about citizen diplomacy, you know, but I lived in a bunch of cities where the, the rent was going up four times faster than the wage. And my experience of the world is one, it's like very different than his, you know, just because of a few decades in which, you know, an Instagram post can like destroy an island economy. 
Future Fossils episode 25, I had uh, Daniel Rosenberg, who's another one of these. If you don't know Dada Ra, you need to. He's from Amsterdam and he's an ex- extraordinary, just completely omnivorous artist who's done all kinds of insane things, uh, often satirical, deeply like post-ironic things that I think you would totally love. Um, and the two of you, the two of you must know each other. And I can't believe it's taken me so long to suggest it. But I'll put him in the show notes as well. Yeah, uh, da da ra. But he was on Future Fossils twenty five, uh, talking about a piece that he was doing that was kind of satirizing virtual reality, and we were talking about how virtual reality is sort of assuming that the new world, quote unquote, is uninhabited. You know, when like uh, Sean was talking about astral virtual realities or like that, you know, they like actually being able to imagine thought form worlds and do existence and, and, and like stepping into them uh, as being a, you know, a higher evolution or better version of this. It gets into that question, which I'm constantly, it's like my crooked teeth. I'm constantly playing with my tongue or on this question of our technologies introducing us to these in a way that gives us a, a stepladder to them or are they the walker that we're using, you know, that like we, that the more we use it, the less, you know, the weaker our legs become and we're never going to, you know, like how are we using these technologies? It's not what they are. It's, it's how we use them. And of course, how we use them is determined in part by what they are and in part by what we are. All of that is to say that you're asking this question about photography, I think brings us pretty quickly into the 90 million other questions we might ask about these phenomena, you know, and like what they truly are and what we truly are. And so, you know, now it feels like a good, a good point to touch in on what the actual download was that second full moon lake sighting because it was, yeah, yeah, is, um, it was actually, that was my next question. It's so funny listening to Sean talk about his work with the harmonic Enneagram and like all the geometric revelations he's had, because what it gave me was like, step one, you have a triangle. Imagine this triangle is, you know, a symbol for a question. Imagine that the answer to that question is a tetrahedron where the question posed by two dimensions is resolved by a third dimension perspective. And it was dimension perspective in the, you know, in the integral sense of like, this is, something that is that both has a form and a subjective quality to it an experience of it you know uh from within and that the universe is built out of this and that you can keep going infinitely and basically like whenever you have come to an irresolvable paradox that means that you are one node of the network that is res- that is capable of resolving this paradox into a higher logical type and, and so like, it gave me a bunch of examples. Like it was like your, you and your friends on the beach here right now, you could triangulate the holographic. And this is one of the few times that I had a sort of like, people talk about this in near death experiences a lot, like a holographic apprehension of the entire space that you're in, where you're seeing it sort of all at once, you know, like a, like a Matterport home realty tour kind of thing, but like yeah, all yeah. of it. The superposition perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, see, look, all your friends here, you're all on the edge of the water. But if you had a friend, 
here in the middle of the lake, then you could get accurate triangulation of like everyone's position on the beach, you know? And then it was like, oh, are two people having trouble? Like, you know, if they had a marriage counselor, ding, and it like, you know, it showed the, it showed the role of therapy in this cosmology in the, in this like physics structure to me. And it was like, okay. So like, obviously you can cast beyond, a, you know, a fourth point into a fifth point and so and on. that's how it's done. Basically <laughs> <laughs> join us. And, you know, it was like, da, 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 da. and, um, you know, so that was like when I walked off down the beach to take a piss, you know, most of the night I'm not getting this kind of stuff with my friends. And I, you know, it's, it, that's worth pointing out. I think, uh, most people listening to this probably know, but if you don't already, it's worth just suggesting that if you're ever in one of these experiences, I think it's good to have consensus. Yes. You're seeing what I'm seeing time, but also like, I'm going to go wander off and get my download time, you know, and that could just be like no movement of the physical body required, just a shift of attention. I had a friend who, who claimed that he was capable of living entirely off of his breath without any food, but only when he had only for the months that he was living up in a, a cabin in the woods alone, doing yoga all the time. And then as soon as he got, he came back down into the city and got roommates, he started like craving steaks. And he's like, there's that, there's the human, you know, you, you are the people that you surround yourself with, you interact with kind of a, component to this, which, you know, I think begs into the the question of Sean's mutual enactment hypothesis. Also your photography question, which is sort of like who shows up for the camera? Who shows up for a particular group of people? How how is like the constellation of people involved a kind of pass key for, you know, you're gonna get a different result with a different, you know, if you swap out one of those people, you're going to get a different set of beings in the saucer, you know, like there'll be a different team to meet you. So driven by that logic, you know, winter came and went. And then that, that next spring of 2007, things started getting extremely weird. We're, we're crossing the, uh, I guess we've, we've crossed the fourth wall. We're, we're now we're crossing the fifth that my friend from high school Cat Chapman, who I'd always had a kind of a, you know, we just like hit it off, but we weren't in the same grade. We didn't see each other a lot. We didn't know what, what that was, but there was a, there was a chemistry there worth exploring. And we finally started getting to know each other outside of once we'd gotten into college and we we're like, Oh, you're cool. Still weren't seeing each other that much. But, um, one day she calls me up out of the blue. I, at this point, You'll remember Zods.com. I do. Brian John. I do indeed. Yeah. The old social network for conscious creatives and so on. Capitalist consciousness. So I met this woman on there, Janie Lake, who lived also in Lawrence. And the first time I ever met her in person, she thought, she she told me immediately. She's like, I think you were my son in a past life. <laughs> I was like, what? This is this spring, like March or something. She's like, yeah, this is. I think you were my son in a past life you and you had a sister, a twin sister and you died. Both of you died while I was trying to help you escape. And she had, Janie was an interesting case. She, she was 
a pediatric nurse who had what you would call a spiritual emergency in midlife suddenly felt like she was in communication with whales telepathically, as well as a number of extraterrestrial races and suddenly felt that she had been become capable of like energy healings and her family committed her to an institution. And I met her after she got out of the institution and I didn't know any of this until like later after a couple of conversations with her. But the first conversation she had, she was like, yeah, I think you were my son in a past life. And I didn't tell that to Kat Chapman. And then like a week later, she's like, you know what? I think this chemistry is between us is like a Luke and Leia thing. I think you and I were brother and sister in a past life, but on another planet. And I'm like, all right, well, that's a, that's odd (laughs) that the, like I would hear that from two different people in a week. Okay. And, you know, so she sent me this web survey that was like, you might be a star child if, or you a star seed if, you know, 65 questions, you might be a star seed if, and I, I think I got like 55 of them were like personally resonant. I was like, I'm not willing to believe this, but I am willing to go out with the lake with you and take mushrooms and see what happens. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so, um, cause she said, you know, she had been staying on land in central Missouri with an old friend of Terrence McKenna's and had seen some UFOs out on this guy's land. And I was like, well, if you and I take mushrooms together, certainly they're going to show up. Like I am confident that they'll show up for us, even though they didn't show up the last time I went out there, like on my national geographic expedition. So we go out there and yeah, immediately. Not only are they, is the sky just flush with them, but also they start telling us both stuff, confirming for us both. Like both of us knew in the same moment that the story that Janie had told me was in whatever way was it relevant or important, true. And that we were in fact, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So like step one is, <laughs> it's so funny because, you know, you know, the three, two, one process and in, like integral shadow work is like, you describe the thing, you have a conversation with the thing, and then you are the thing. That's what happened in these three experiences. It went from, do you guys see that thing to I'm getting downloads from the thing in the second experience <laughs> to... Actually, <laughs> you and this friend of yours are brother and sister, and you're like emanations from the thing that we are. Like you're like dispatched from the home team of this race of beings. And I should, I need to add, because I forgot this whole part about the second part, which is the second trip out there. They also dropped this whole history on me where they were like, So this is all stuff you know, but we're just going to lay it out in a way that makes the most sense in case you haven't recognized the pattern that you're looking for yet. And that, you know, this is going to sound unfamiliar to precisely no listeners. You may have noticed because of your background in the life sciences and natural history that life started on this planet right away. Huh. Seems like it can anywhere it, you know, anywhere that's supportive of, you know, self-organizing adaptive processes, they're going to happen. Huh. So I guess it probably did happen. 
And actually, it was Avi Loeb, right, that you interviewed, the physicist? Yeah. Who talked about this? Yep. Yeah. You know, like years later, you had this interview with Avi Loeb that I heard that I was like, son of a bitch. That's it. That's it. it was like there was, a, there was like a period in the cosmic evolution that was actually even more well-suited for life than our current period, you know, and that's like just one bubble of the multiverse, mm. you know? And so like, and of course they threw in the sort of like Rupert Sheldrake, like, and once it's happened somewhere, it's going to happen somewhere else, even easier, you know, that there's some kind of non-local record or, you know, uh, creode, some groove that things are scraped into. And they're like, so yeah, so basically this is still, you know, September of 2006 that they're like, so basically your planet was ripe and we were like, oh, and we decided to go check it out. And so we came in and sort of enmeshed ourselves with the nascent biosphere and have been here since the beginning. And like, I came back from that experience, that, that trip at the lake with my, my two guy friends telling our girlfriends like not only did like we saw aliens and they were just like oh my god please please do not go around people telling people this please and but on top of it like i had had this extra thing which my my other two guy friends had not had this experience of them being like and you know we've been a part of the planetary subtle body from the very beginning we're basically in some ways not as alien as you are because we've been here for <laughs> the whole time. Whereas you're like, you, you are made out of stuff that has just sort of drifted in. So <laughs> the third one, the next spring, the third experience, they're like, and on top of that, there's this whole taxonomy and, and uh, cosmology that they're unfolding for me in which they're saying there are like various races that exist in the fairy realm, I guess, basically, because at this point I had already learned to associate on the second, the first, well, not the first one, the second one, I had seen something that looked kind of like a will of the wisp also, you know, like very low still over the marshy areas, beautiful, but kind of beckoning, but kind of ominous. I don't know, you know, with the ominous stuff, it's really hard to tell what is me the whole thing it's just hard to tell you know like is this am i is this my feeling or is this a feeling associated with this thing or uh you know but it was the appearance of that will of the wisp thing that like a lot led me to connect at the time because this wasn't something that i was like i I wasn't hip to jacques valet you know graham hancock hadn't written supernatural yet and so i had i had no in but like i i was able to sort of suss out that there was like okay there's fairy world shit and there's aliens and there's some kind of connection and then like they laid out in that second and third trip that the connection was that earth has its own sort of invisible ecosystems and that there are layers of those and that they're invisible ecosystems that are of extraterrestrial origin that are invested in those but some of them are more like woven in and some of them are more sort of sanitized observer, non-intervention prime directive kind of stance. And that these layers act as not obligatory, but 
frequent for the sake of convenience buffers whereby extraterrestrial information can be sort of like transformed into terrestrial information. And I mean that in any kind of causal sense, like I'm, I'm specifically talking about like souls, I guess, and how it was, it was explained to me that like (laughs) right out the gate, they were extremely clear about this. They were like, just because you're star seeds or whatever you want to call it does not mean that you are not earthlings. Like you are for sure human beings born on planet earth and you are from here and this is your home. Like it was like so so careful to make this point. You know, I was like you do not spin out on some homesick bullshit trip, you know, about like how you want the mothership to come take you away. That is absolutely not the point of you being here. That is a failure condition, you know, of of like your your embeddedness in this biosphere. Like you are supposed to be at home here. And this was a confirmation of many, many earlier experiences that I had about like trying to figure out like what I am as a human being, like what the hell am I doing in this life? And, you know, and, and like in that, in that night, in that experience with my, the woman I now call my sister and have ever since, um, I had this sudden anamnesis of uh, this experience of my mother around the age of, when I was 11 or 12, telling me that she had had a dream. We were living in Orlando at the time. My dad worked for Disney and she had had a dream that I had grown up and worked as an orca trainer at the SeaWorld in Orlando and that the orca had accidentally broken my back while breaching in the pool and it was mourning me like had 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 accident had killed me on accident and was grieving for me in her dream and she woke up that day and made me promise i would not become a whale trainer like wouldn't that i would not become a marine biologist like do not become a marine biologist <laughs> and i was like i had always had like a this passionate you know like this thing about uh sea life and in college i took an evolutionary biology class of marine mammals and i almost quit what i was doing in dinosaur science and was like screw this i'm just gonna i'm just gonna study whales and dolphins like this is awesome but the problem was by high school i had developed a sinus problem that made it impossible for me to put my head more than a few feet underwater without developing a splitting headache. And so I could not become, I cannot be scuba certified. Like I can go snorkeling without a guarantee of a a problem, but really I can't put my head at the bottom of the pool without getting a headache. So that third trip out there with cat, the beings were like, and I, you know, I say craft, but I really get the sense that, as I think you you kind of alluded to, that these each of these so-called craft were like distinct beings in their own right. And I was wondering things like, well, could I knock one out of the sky? Like, could you shoot one of these things and then like go pick up the pieces? Which is a very natural white male modern kind of question. I mean, it's probably not exclusively white or modern, but it's a very male question. 
you know, and there was like, I was getting like a yes and a no <laughs> back. Well, yeah, yeah, they're, they're physical. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a physical pattern to this stuff, but it's, it's not going to like, it's not going to be like a duck if you shoot it and you're going to like eat the duck. As soon as you accept the possibility that you've interacted with something that is deeply other to the categories that you have to describe it, um, then it becomes, well, okay, so what is my relationship to this trans-categorical thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, <Yes>. and so, <laughs> you know, it's like um, there's there – you have to level up your own ontology in order to deal with this. And you have to level up – I mean, and that includes the, the ontology of your own subjectivity, you know? Like you cannot be the person that you were before these experiences challenged, like, you know, cut through all of the categories that you had, you know, and showed how there's like a line of slime connecting all of these boxes that you thought had been so neatly partitioned. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Michael Garfield. For more information, check the show notes. The Art of Deception Hoaxes are one form of creative expression. For example, a South Korean man uploaded a video featuring a UFO along with an explanation that the consciousness of the witness was a magnetic draw of UFOs and aliens, pulling them into his presence. All that was required to summon the craft was a sufficiently focused meditative mind. Commenters on the video asserted that the craft matched others filmed in Palm Springs, Dubai, and Rome, which was true. But upon closer inspection, a more prosaic explanation was soon revealed. The videos had all been filmed using an augmented reality app called UFO Video Camera. The app inserts UFOs into video footage in real time, providing, quote, ultra-realistic UFO effects that appear as if they are really in the sky. Other hoaxers have taken things even further such as English painter Lloyd Canning. Canning claimed to be inspired to paint UFOs after three sightings. In addition, he stated he was abducted in 2005, and that ever since the abduction, images flooded his brain with visions of beautiful, surreal subjects of non-human life forms. Canning said, quote, I think I was chosen because I was an artist, end quote. Sadly, after obtaining significant media attention, Canning admitted he'd fabricated the abductions. Oh, Lloyd, I'm so annoyed. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, around creativity, spirituality, 
and anomalous experiences. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session. If you enjoy the podcast, consider becoming a patron. Patrons have access to scores of exclusive offerings, including music, videos, scripts, paintings, and dirty, filthy photos. We use every dollar to commit and fight crime. How's that for doubleness? Sean S. Bjorn Harkins. Check the show notes for a link. We leave you with a song by Michael Garfield, When the Orbit Curtain Falls, which is inspired by his sightings at the lake in Nebraska. West of town, past the war from the Civil War. There's a lake that was made by the Army Corps Where on especially clear nights The sky above would swim with lights And I point them out They pass the test The world is bigger than we guessed But when the orbit curtain falls The glow will glow with the urgent calls And we are waiting for it all There are some things that we refuse to even see So much of life is kept from sight by obsolete machinery But even when we try, some things are hidden to the eye. But tonight, I point them out. They pass the test. The world is bigger than we guessed. And when the orbit curtain falls, the glow will glow with urgent calm. And we are waiting for it all. We are praying for it all to drown. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all.